the way that the lifting system developed, it was almost like a game of chess, where if you could get an alignment to a certain point, you effectively negated your competition from from going anywhere near that. And you were able to ride both lots of lift, but you had to have a separate ticket. But the greatest legacy that came out of all of this is that the competition drove innovation and it drove development. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. We are leaving the United States for the first time today on this podcast. Before we get to that, remember to go subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. If you're from Australia and you're listening for the first time, first of all, thank you. Second, I want you to know that the podcast is just a part of the storm. The newsletter goes deep on all things lift, surf, skiing, mostly in the U.S., yes, but I know you travel Australia, you're everywhere, and if you ever have or ever plan to ski the U.S., you're going to like the newsletter. For more frequent updates, you can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First, let's talk about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you're going to be shocked when you see the new format. It's a monster, 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What hasn't changed is the incredible wide-ranging writing and show-stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, due out this fall, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with the photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. I've got another gallery to announce. Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss these. You need to subscribe today at mountaingazette.com to reserve your copy. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That will ensure that you get both of those galleries and all of the tremendous writing that is coming out in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 56, Lori Blampede, General Manager of Mount Buller, Australia. All right, mixing it up today. Believe it or not, this is the first episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast focused outside of the United States. I kind of thought, to be honest with you, that when that finally happened, and I knew that it would eventually, it would be Canada, but Australia beat them to it. So here we are. One of the things that's fascinating to me about skiing is how different it feels as you move through different cultures and different geographies. It's fundamentally the same thing. We all know that. But that intangible thing called atmosphere is a unique cocktail. And no one really knows the recipe. So I was really interested to have this opportunity to learn about the culture and the mountains and skiing in Australia. If you've never been there, or even if you have, I think you're really going to enjoy Lori's perspective on all this. Here's a guy who's lived the industry's evolution over the course of several decades, who has traveled all over the world skiing, 
who has a really incredible perspective on this whole thing. Let's hear it. My guest today has been the general manager at Mount Buller, Australia since 1995. Located in Victoria State, Mount Buller is one of the largest ski resorts in Australia. With 20 lifts serving 740 acres of skiable terrain and a 1,300-foot vertical drop. Prior to joining Mount Buller, he was assistant general manager at neighboring Falls Creek. Lori Blampede is my guest. Lori, so good to have you on the show today. Hello, Stuart, and hello to your listeners. Uh, first of all, Lori, I want to congratulate you. I, I introduced you as the general manager of Mount Buller, but that's no longer going to be the case because you are celebrating your retirement after a long career. How does that feel? Yeah, look, I, I think it. Uh, I'm still coming to terms with that. It's um, you know the, this this job, uh, the ski industry is your life, and uh, that's what it's been like for me for the best part of 30 years. So uh, I've got a bit of figuring out to do uh, in the next uh, in the next few months, but um, I'm sure I'll be able to work it out. Do you tra- tend to travel and ski during the Australian off season up in the northern hemisphere? Yeah, look, I think uh, we're very fortunate um, to live sort of counter-cyclical to the uh, European and North American winters. And uh, um, over, the, over the years, I've been uh, very fortunate to uh, travel extensively in, in both Europe and, and North America, also in China and Japan, where, where most of our international suppliers are based. And, you know, they've usually got something uh, nice, and, nice and new and shiny to show you. And uh, uh, I've been uh, very privileged to um, uh, enjoy those sort of um, those sort of trips, as well as visiting uh, our sister resorts uh, on many occasions, as well. You know that uh, that Chinese ski scene is so interesting to me, Laurie, because from my understanding, they didn't have much, if any, kind of developed ski resorts until very recently. And the government said, "Okay, we're going to emphasize winter sports. We want this to be part of the culture." And they just started building ski resorts like crazy. Just talk to us a little bit about your travels up there and your impressions of this emerging Chinese ski scene. Yeah, no, that that's a fascinating that's a fascinating aspect, and uh, uh, out, we've had a um, sister resort relationship with um, a place called Secret Gardens, which will host the uh, uh, Freestyle Olympics um, in twenty twenty two. And uh, yeah, when when that approach came, and uh, the, the issue there is they had to import uh, pretty much all of the know how. There was no um, no domestic capability there whatsoever so no culture of skiing as well which is another mm-hmm. fascinating right. thing so um, a lot of uh, Australian and North American expats uh, were working as, as the pioneers of that industry and you go there and they have everything that opens and shuts everything's nice and nice and shiny and nice and new but um, they really don't know how to <laughs> what to do with it or how to use it and it's the only <laughs> ski resort in the world that I've been to where uh, the patrollers didn't ski because um, they rode snowmobiles because they couldn't get any any patrollers who could ski. Um, <laughs> and, and we were, you know, and the, the whole idea of our, um, of our exchange was, a, was an information exchange uh, for them. So we would send uh, people there and, um, uh, and help with the training of, of their business. Um, and they were very keen to build a market and uh, export um, export skiers to other parts of the world, so they'd get a bit of a a bit of a taste for it and a bit of a flavour. So, you know, that, that was that was fascinating. And I remember uh, going into the into the patrol 
the patrol room one day and they had all these wonderful new first aid kits and opening them up and say, well, show me what you've got. And they've got snake bite kits and burn kits with <laughs> no ferno mattresses, no hair splints. It was, they were coming from a long way behind the ball. And then you go down, oh you go down God. to the rental shop and uh, I think they had uh, 1,500 pairs of brand new skis um, on, in, in the rental fleet. But they're all set on um, they're all set on DIN five, and I said, "How does this work?" I said, "Well, <laughs> we haven't got to change. We're just getting the uh, we're just getting the uh, the boot lengths right. You know, once we get that right, we'll we'll work on the the DIN setting." So it was an experience. Oh my God, you have a lot of twisted knees, I guess. I said um, on the beginner hills. So so do they get snow though? I know you know Japan is legendary for. Places that get thousand inches a year. Are there snowy regions of China? Are there places we should be locking into and have our eyes on when they do get the infrastructure working? Look, my my experience is limited to that um, to that secret garden in that Beijing area, uh, which is about two and a half hours out of Beijing. Um, so I can't speak authoritatively on the rest of China. But this this is part of a desert. Um, it's very very dry, but bitterly cold. Really really cold. Um, minus minus 27, minus 30 Celsius. <laughs> I've never been so wow. cold. Um, oh, my gosh. And relies extensively on snowmaking. Plenty of water, uh, but the best conditions I've ever seen for snowmaking. And uh, when they make snow in, you know, they make snow in November and it's still there in, in, in March and just massive, massive, massive piles. So good skiing, though, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, uh, clearly the Olympic uh, Winter Olympics are coming up in China, and the area where they're having the Olympics gets less than an inch of natural snow a year, from what I've read. Correct. But they're just going to make it. Correct. And they make and they make heaps. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, you've you've been around, uh, traveled a lot, made a career in the ski business, but you did not start there. Just take us back to the beginning, Lori. Where did your career begin, and how did you end up in the ski industry? Well, I'm, I, I trained as a as, as a civil engineer, and um, for the first yeah, for 15, 18 years of my life, I, I worked in in engineering and uh, and construction, and later in, in building and construction. Uh, spent a lot of time working in New Guinea and around Australia in some remote mining sites, and that uh, was fun for a while. But I was pretty keen to get out of those environments, and. Um, Ended up um, coming back to Melbourne, and I was running a um, a major construction company in uh, in Melbourne. And um, my entry into the ski industry was uh, was quite inadvertent, really. Um, I'd, I'd uh, we'd won a, a couple of major contracts to build some um, some infrastructure, and I was using a, um, a headhunter or recruitment agency to to assist uh, with the recruitment of some project staff. And as it turned out, um, this, uh, the, the, the agency that I was working, the guy that I was working with had recruited me as a, as a graduate engineer to, um, to a mining company that I started my career at. So we, we, had a, we had a long relationship. And after we finished uh, these interviews, it was on a Friday afternoon. And I recall he, he invited me to have a beer in the, in the boardroom and uh, he said to me, well, you know, you must be really happy the way that, you know, your career's panned out and the success you've had and, you know, what, uh, you know, how's it all going? And I said, well, well, yes and no. <laughs> I'd work for a, I'd work for a, um, for a private company when I was sort of 
grown up with that business and had a very close relationship with the owners and they'd sold out the business to a to a large multicultural uh, a multinational company I should say and and that business is very uh, <clears throat> construction's a pretty tough business you know we 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 I like to describe it as you've got a workforce that's highly unionized and they want to do the the least amount of work for the most amount of money and then you've got a then you've got a bunch of uh, of clients that um, um, you know, we would say in, in our country they want a Rolls Royce product at the price for the price of a Volkswagen, <laughs> and then you've got your owners and your shareholders that you know want you to keep uh, both of those parties happy uh, and make that and make them a lot of money as well. And uh, right. and guess what, <laughs> you can't keep everybody happy. So anyway, I, I was uh, I was probably looking for a bit of a breather at that stage, and, uh, and I just said off the top of my head, I'd like to be a uh, a poor man's hands grimace, which will mean nothing to you or listeners, but uh, <laughs> he was a local identity at Mount Buller. Uh, okay. And that meant I wanted to, uh, I'd like to spend uh, a lot of my time uh, drinking, sorry, skiing, fishing, and a little, little bit of drinking on the side. <laughs> and uh, the response to that was, uh, well, I, you know, we really don't have a, 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 a brief for a position like that at the moment. <laughs> Um, but we are recruiting for a general manager of Falls Creek Ski Lifts. Uh, would you be interested in, uh, in, uh, in throwing your hat in the ring for that? And um, at that time, Falls Creek Ski Lifts was owned by the major competitor of the construction company that I work for. And uh, I was well known to the owners of that company. And uh, by the end of the, um, by the end of that, that week, I'd, uh, I'd secured a job as a, manager of a, a ski resort, which was, in my experience since that time, is un, unprecedented, just being in the, in the right place at the right time. So you get to Falls Creek and you have this background in construction. You were looking for a break, do something different. How did that go? You, you show up there and, and it, what was that learning curve like to, to figure out, okay, I'm in charge of a ski resort. I mean, did you even ski? Oh yeah, well, actually, the 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 role morphed over that uh, uh, be, before uh, before I arrived there. At the time that they were recruiting, there was a there was at the time where the consolidation a lot of the um, Australian resorts was taking place, and um, the owners um, the owners of one group of companies, um, uh, ski resorts was 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 in the process of they were the owners of uh, Falls Creek were in the process of making a uh, a bid for um, Perisher, and uh, they were looking to consolidate these resorts in New South Wales, and that was going to be a blue Perisher consortium, which won't mean a lot to a lot of listeners again. But um, and the guy that was running Falls Creek was going to go to um, New South Wales and, and run that consolidated entity. Over the space of twelve months, those negotiations kind of um, stalled, morphed, and then twisted, and instead of becoming um, um, Blue Perisher, it became Perisher Blue, uh, and and the and uh, and the Packer family um, became the owners. So the job that I was going to Falls Creek to do didn't eventuate, but uh, I was recruited as a the assistant general manager, and and I did that I did that for three years, and uh, probably the best three years of my life. Why is that? Well, it was a it was a step down in terms of uh, responsibility. It was a step up in terms of uh, having fun and and uh, having a great time, meeting some wonderful people, um, 
having the time to spend uh, with my wife and young family at that at that stage uh, that, that that I'd missed out on for for many many years. So um, yeah, so that was and, and and pretty uncomplicated. It was good. Was there a moment, Laurie, when when you said I made the right decision? You know, or or, or did you just leave construction? and never look back and you were just happy from day one or, or, or did it take a minute to kind of settle in and figure out, okay, yeah, this is where I need to, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. No, look, I think it was day one. Um, really? you know, you, I, I, I explained some of those frustrations of those, those three, uh, those three parties that you're trying to satisfy. And, uh, you know, there's no respite from that. You know, that, that, that is, that is, that is, um, that is, uh, relentless. And, uh, you get into the ski industry and it's a lifestyle, it's a life. And uh, you're surrounded by, you know, passionate and motivated people and people that want to be there. Um, they want to be there to live and they want to be there to work and uh, and they want to be there to have fun. So yeah, no regrets from day one. And, and that extends not only uh, to myself, but but also to, to my family. I think if you spoke to any of my kids, you spoke to my wife, uh, that, that all say exactly the same thing. So you're cooking along at uh, at Falls Creek, getting the hang of the industry, and uh, then you go over to Mount Buller. How did that opportunity come up, Laurie, and, and what made you decide you were ready for it? Well, uh, again, it was at a time of consolidation in, in, in the industry, and this was at the time in 1996 where um, Falls Creek was, was acquired by the owners of Mount Hotham, uh, and they were, uh, at the time, that, that Mount Hotham was owned by uh, a large um, retail superannuation fund, and uh, and I was listening to all of the um, the backstory and the vision and and everything else. And uh, to be honest, I, I couldn't see I couldn't see the synergies of the business. I couldn't see how they were going to be stronger together. Um, and uh, I, I just saw it as a yeah, I, I just saw it as an expansionary move that that really wasn't going to benefit Falls Creek. Um, at the same time, I was regularly fielding um, offers to um, to go back to the construction industry. Um, I still had you know some good contacts in that in, in that business, and uh, um, and I'd, I'd have been made a particularly attractive offer. And so I just thought, well, okay, this is this is it. You know, I've had three great years here, and um, you know, there's a path, there's a there's a fork in the road, and uh, uh, I'm going to go this way. And uh, at that time, I um, I took a, a, a an unsolicited call from from Reno Groller, uh, who's the owner of Mount Buller, um, of Buller Ski Lifts, and um, and uh, I'd in my in my previous life, I'd done a lot of work for. Uh, the um, the Grollo uh, the Grollo group not directly for Reno I didn't know Reno I had a lot more to do with his his brothers and uh, his project his project managers um, so uh, yeah and that opportunity come to Buller and uh, after serving a three year apprenticeship uh, the opportunity to come to Buller and run Buller present itself and there um, yeah, the rest is history <laughs> and did you ever imagine that you'd be here twenty five years later that that would be your last job. No, no, never. And, and and you look back and say, twenty five years. Where did that go? You know, it's just <laughs> it's just the blink of an eye. So I understand you raised your three children right there at the resort. What was that like for them? Um, they had a unique they had a unique experience being coming out of um, 
living in Melbourne and um, big city, um, all the constraints that go with that with stranger danger and, and everything else to basically being free range kids um, and being able to pretty much go any anywhere they like. They always had people looking after them. They're very they're very identifiable. Um, but them and a you know group of other you know young people, the resort families, um, uh, they they had an idyllic childhood in, in in many respects. When we came to Mount Buller, we 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 didn't live in resort. We bought a um, we bought a house in the valley, um, so they had the benefit of of growing up in Mansfield as well as a, as well as a resort experience. So yeah, they um, yeah they they're very happy. They like skiing. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so let's zoom out here, and I want to look at the Australian ski industry as a whole. So, take us back here, Laurie, to the early '90s when you first got into the industry of False Creek. What did the Australian ski industry look like then, and how does it compare to the, what it looks like now? Well, in the early '90s, there was something like uh, 12, um, 12 resorts, um, uh, independently owned and independently operated, um, and. If you look at, uh, I talked about the consolidation uh, before. So with the combination of uh, consolidation and climate change, there's now, uh, there are now only um, eight resorts uh, and, and, and six owners. So, um, uh, you know, a massive change over that period of time. It, when you say resorts, is that all the ski areas you have in Australia or do you have the smaller community places that might have one chairlift? By a town, or or does that model not exist there? Well, it's it's a combination of both. Um, yes, yeah, some in that twelve, um, you know, there's those that includes the Mar and Pa, uh, the Mar and Pa ski fields. Maybe not just the one. Probably the smallest um, ski ski area we would have would have no less than four, no less than four lifts. Um, but yeah, that that's the sum total of the Australian industry. Yeah. In- of, of that twelve you mentioned, were and now we're down to eight. Did did those four merge into other mountains that were next door, or did some of them go out of business? Um, I would say that uh, yeah, the, the biggest consolidation was in New South Wales. We had places like um, Blue Cow, Smiggins Hole, Gathika, um, and and Perisher. Um, they they all merged into into a mega resort now. And, um, and you would have heard of heard Perisher. They have something like forty seven lifts and a massive Jeez. massive area. Um, yeah, it is. And uh, so, and and there was a natural consolidation with those because there is a linkage between each of those resorts. Um, in Victoria, um, we've had um, um, one resort um, that that has gone out of business. A place called Mount Buffalo um, was a consequence of. Um, yeah, mainly, mainly to do with the sustainability of the resort, and that was to do with the fact that it didn't have a power a power supply, um, and and then you get an incident like a bushfire, and they lose the assets, and you know that's um, you know that that was kind of the the death knell for that, uh, and uh, yeah, that's 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 pretty much the picture that we have. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the fires. I, I had actually hadn't thought to bring this up with you, but uh, we've seen a number of our resorts in the western United States threatened by wildfires these past two seasons. It had, no fire has quite destroyed a resort yet, but uh, Sierra Tahoe out in California 
um, had quite extensive damage from the Caldor fire recently. Um, we all heard about the, the just enormous wildfires that hit Australia last year. Have Are those in the same region as the resorts? I'm just not familiar with the geography of the country to be aware of this, but yeah, are, is that a factor for you? Is, is wildfires uh, uh, something absolutely. you have to deal with? Absolutely. I, I noticed with interest some 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 pictures of uh, John Rice, who's a manager down there at uh, in in uh, Sierra Tahoe, and uh, I met John many many years ago, and pictures of him standing beside some some SMI fans um, fighting fires. I mean, we live that we live that every year. Um, uh, Nineteen uh, two thousand and six, uh, our resort was. Um, uh, encompassed by fires for the best part of uh, 38 days um, oh so so lived and 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 every one of those every one of those 38 days the uh, the answer was we're going to be uh, we're going to be overrun within the next 24 to 48 hours by fire so you know, at that stage i think we probably pioneered the use of um, uh, um, snow making as, as a fire protection system um, and uh, and, and we were very successful for that. Hotham and Falls Creek have both had um, uh, been exposed to, to fires uh, in recent years. Uh, and in fact, in 2019, Selwyn Snowfields is one of our smaller uh, resorts in, in New South Wales, uh, was totally devastated by, um, by fire. So it's a, it's a total rebuild for those guys. Wow. So during that thirty-eight days, Lori, were you on site? Just yeah, yeah. Now we 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 uh, uh, we're at the end of the road, and um, the road was uh, the road was cut off by fire, um, and we had a band of and about twenty of twenty of our people, the good old boys, as you call them over there, uh, and girls <laughs> and girls, who were committed to you know asset protection for our resort. You know we were hunkered down there in a five-star hotel. So it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we were on standby for, for asset protection and we had firefighters that were flying in and out. Um, and, and, of course, there were the, the, the um, uh, what do they call them, the strike teams coming and going. But, um, yeah, together we got the job done. It, it was that the most intensive fire incident that you've had to deal with? Yes, yes. Yes, I mean, looking back in your career, Laurie, has there been anything to compare to that? Just in terms of of stress and uh, adrenaline, and and just the overwhelming forces of nature and having to deal with it. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, I, I I think that is a fair that's a fair comment, Stuart. I think uh, nothing, you know, to get through that, the satisfaction that we had to get through that and survive that and the camaraderie that was um, developed and the, the respect um, for those for those men and women that were there. Um, yeah, that, that builds a bond that uh, lasts a very long time. I think the last couple of years with COVID, uh, <laughs> different, type of, different type of stress um, uh, and, and certainly equally as relentless um, uh, and, and to date it's nowhere near as rewarding. Right. <laughs> Uh, so, so you you mentioned that there's been a lot of consolidation, and you have uh, six owners for the eight resorts, and one of those is Vale Resorts, who bought all these resorts you've mentioned: Parrish, Hottam, Falls Creek. Um, interesting, though, that Buller is still family owned. Tell us about who owns Mount Buller. 
Yeah, well, the uh, Bull Ski List is owned by Reno Grollo and his family. Um, Reno's, um, Reno, is, as you'd presume with a, a name like that, is, um, is an Italian. Uh, he's, uh, he's second or first generation Australian-Italian. His father started a concreting business and one of the early jobs that he did um, was in 1960. They, they built a uh, concrete line reservoir at Mount Buller for the village water supply. So Reno's family's association with Mount Buller goes back to 1960. And um, they bought some land in in the valley and um, started to ski. So, um, yeah, it goes back a long, long way. And uh, um, the two brothers uh, made it uh, it big in um, building and property development, particularly in Melbourne, but also to a lesser extent in Sydney. And Reno's owned uh, owned the the lift company since uh, 1993. He had a minority shareholding prior to that, but took a controlling interest or full ownership in 1993. And he's what uh, you'd call in the industry as a very passionate lifestyle investor. And um, you know, the, over the passage of time as well, um, the the management of those assets from Mount uh, at Mount Buller is. Now passed you know, from him being very hands-on. That was his. That was his passion. Uh, that's handed been handed on to his children now. So we're onto the third third generation of Grollos that uh, that that have uh, um, have a connection with Mount Buller. So talk about that dynamic and that relationship that you have with that family. Where's the line between uh, between them letting you run the resort day to day and deciding the priorities and what it needs, and and them stepping in and. Uh, inserting their own priorities into into your job and, and for better or worse, sort of <laughs> letting it be known what they want? Um, that's a very good question. And, and I'd describe that as being a very elastic line. It's, it, it, it's very elastic. And, and, and it's changed. It's changed over, over time um, enormously. In the early days, um, their passion would manifest itself in, you know, when Arena want to choose the, the, the cover shot on the on the front of the brochure, um, the resort guide. Uh, um, but he wouldn't necessarily want to know anything about, you know, uh, a lift design or a, or a, um, a snowmaking expansion plan. So, um, you know, there's um, – and, 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 and that's what it was like 25 years ago. Today it, it's completely different. You know, we sort of run like a um, – you know, we're, we're more like a – uh, professional corporate business, but there's still the family involvement. You know, there's there's still the grand the grandkids are working in the business now, or they might work as ski instructors, or they might work behind a bar, or they they might work uh, in in a rental shop. But they they just they they spend uh, every weekend at least up there. It's it's you know it's it's just part of the it's just part of the fabric um, of, of of the resort, and they they know. They, they know most of the staff or, you know, the, the, the permanent staff at least. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe. It's, um, it's just part of the, the fabric of the resort. Yeah, I, I think if you scale any business up enough, it's going to have to have some kind of corporate structure. But that doesn't mean that it loses that touch of the owners wandering around the place and, uh, and knowing everybody and, you know, checking tickets when they, when they need to. and helping on lifts or, or whatever. I mean, there's, there's examples of this all over the place of, of that sort of model of ownership. Yeah. And, and the thing, 
the thing that everybody understands and appreciates is that they really care about the place, um, they care about the people, and, um, you know, they put their money where their mouth is. And, uh, and that's, in, particularly in tough times, um, that's, that's very, very important and very highly valued. Yeah, and that, that thing called culture is pretty hard to create, and um, it's, it's easy to, to mess it up, but it's hard to institute it in the first place, and it sounds like what they've done is created a place where people want to be for a long time. I'm curious here, Laurie, as you've kept in touch with your colleagues at Falls Creek and elsewhere and uh, these places that Vail bought, do, do you get a sense from them that Vail owning those mountains has changed the culture there? Um, it's, uh, Hotherman Falls Creek had been, uh, had common ownership, as I said to you, since 1996. And, um, I think they've, Hotherman Falls Creek had been through something like six or seven changes of ownership, um, uh, prior to Vale, um, acquiring them in, in 2019. So when someone said to you earlier that they, didn't exactly see the see the path uh, how that was all going to work out. I think I probably read the read the tea leaves pretty right there, and they went through some they went through some really rough times. You know, there's I had friends there that had twenty four years of uh, long service leave and accrued entitlements, and there were periods of times where you know all of that was you know was at risk. Uh, were they going to see their see their entitlements? Um, so. And then most recently, they were owned by uh, a, a, a consortium that owned um, uh, aquariums and, and other attractions, and they were acquired by Merlin, uh, Merlin which is a very large um, international company, British company, owns the London Eye and, um, and um, the Wheel, uh, London Eye and, and Madame Tussauds. And... And the ski resorts were kind of like, you know, the steak knives in the uh, in the transaction. I don't think they even realised that they had a couple of ski resorts. So <laughs> the, the, the people that were working in the business at that stage had been through a lot of, you know, a lot of frustrations by having owners that really weren't engaged with the ski industry. Um, they really didn't know what they were dealing in. You know, quite frankly, it was it was a risk that that they um, that they didn't want to um you know, didn't want to have on their plate. So for the people at Hotherman Falls Creek, I think the acquisition from Vale was was quite welcome because at least they had owners that understood the industry. Um, they had peers um, within the, the, the corporate structure that, that they could relate to. Um, so that was a very that was a very welcome uh, acquisition for those for those two resorts. And Vale had owned Perisher. Um, for probably five or six years prior to that, so uh, it's it's been a long burn there. I don't know. It's it's interesting to watch the the global scene evolve, and, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about you joining Icon Pass later on. Uh, in in the meantime, I'm I'm curious: Have the Grollos selected your replacement yet, Laurie? Yes, yes. Um, we uh, we hired a guy by the name of Noel Landry. Uh, who, who joined the business um, in uh, in uh, May? He started work, so he sort of worked uh, uh, as my understudy for for this winter, uh, and he'll take over the reins uh, uh, officially at the end of uh, at the end of October, but uh, more practically from the end of this week, I would suggest. Um, 
Noel's, uh, Noel's a North American, um, Canadian-born, um, but he's been in Australia for over, over, over 24 years. He's got an Australian wife, so we'll claim, claim him as one of our own. <laughs> Where has he been working? Noel's come from an event background, um, which when I first thought about that, saw that as a, a, an unusual fit. But the more, I've, uh, the more opportunity I've had to talk with Noel and understand you know the sorts of things that he that he was involved in. He was involved in in uh, the Sydney Olympics and building infrastructure for the Sydney Olympics. He's been involved in uh, the Melbourne Grand Prix. He's been involved in um, muscle car type uh, events. So when you when you stop and think about it, you know there are there are, it's like a seasonal workforce. You've got to put a lot of infrastructure get in together. You've got to get marketing. You've got to get sponsorship. You've got to get promotions. You've got ticketing solutions, food and beverage. So, yeah, it's not a bad fit at all. Yeah. Are you hanging around in any capacity? Yes. Look, I'll, I'll be around. Uh, I'll be around uh, as a consultant for at least the next uh, next twelve months. Um, there's a couple of um, major projects that we've that we've got on the go as a as a slow burn that um, that I'd like to see through to completion and let let uh, Noel focus on uh, on the operations uh, and just just there and to, to facilitate the transition and uh, yeah what happens after that remains to be seen we'll just see how how all that pans out what are those pro- projects you're going to be focused on Laurie? Um, major one is uh, is a snowmaking project we've got a um, um, in 2020 we built an, another 100 megalitre storage dam water had been the um, limiting factor for our snowmaking system for for many years and now we've solved the water problem now we've got a we've got a power problem because uh, we don't have enough power to um, to uh, expand our system and, and in particular our uh, air, air plant so we've got a major utility project uh, that we that I sit on the project control group for and and then we've got uh, an air plant and and the final build of our of our snowmaking system so once we once we do this next stage, it'll it'll be at capacity, uh, and uh, yeah, that's a good time to put the the queue in the rack as well. Yeah, what what are you looking at for energy? Are you looking at, at solar or wind or anything like that, or is it just a matter of tapping into the existing grid? No, it's 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 upgrading the feeder supply. All right. Well, let's talk about the mountain here. That's a good transition. Uh, I want to start actually. If you could help orient us a little bit to Australian ski culture, I've never skied in Australia. Uh, I would love to one day, but um, we kind of have two basic models of skiing in the Northern Hemisphere. There's the North American model, where everything that's on the mountain is open. If you can see it, you can ski it. Um, they'll mark cliffs. Uh, but there's a real emphasis on trees and bump skiing, especially out west where they don't get the freestyle problems that we do in the east. And then you have kind of the European model where they love their piece. They love grooming. Uh, they mostly stay on the piece. If you do go off piste, you know, it's it's at your own risk because they don't mark anything. They, you know, if you want to ski off a 500-foot cliff, they'll let you. So probably you should grab a guide if you're going to do that in Europe. So it's it's two sort of different philosophies, um, and there's a lot of reasons behind those. But it, does the do Australian mountains tend to hew more toward one or the other of those models? Are are you at a mix? Like help us understand what you get when you step onto a lift serve mountain in Australia. Well. Well, first thing I'd say, it's nothing like either of those models. 
Okay. <laughs> um, what, what, you, what you've got to appreciate is that um, the, the snow line finishes about 1,200 metres, which is, which is 4,000 feet. So all of the valleys, um, all of the valleys, um, they're green in winter. Uh, there's, no, there's no snow, there's no permanent snow uh, on, on the ground. So the snow, the snow fields and the villages are all located on, on the top of the, the hills because that, that's, where the, uh, that's where the snow is. And um, that's very and, – and, and when it comes to, you know, driving, you know, people that come, to, come skiing for the first time have absolutely no experience about driving in, 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 in snow and ice. No one has snow tires. No, you, you've got to rent chains and um, showing people how to uh, how to rent chains and fit chains and all that sort of stuff. It's a first uh, for, for many many people. So that's the fundamental difference. And you can be you can be at the mountains and it can be you know sub zero um, Celsius temperatures and you can be down the valleys at. Uh, uh, and it's um, you know it could be twenty degrees. You, you can and you can play golf. So for example, one of one of the uh, one of the uh, events that we run here at Mount Buller very successfully is a ski and golf day, where in in in, in the morning you're ski racing and then in the afternoon um, you're playing you're playing golf after a forty five minute drive. So um, yeah, it's so it's 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 not like that. So as the mountains get to um, as you get to the uh, to the top of the mountains, Australia is a very old continent, and so um, our our landscape, our mountains are very very old. So that means that they're not sharp and pointy like you see in the Rockies or or the European Alps. They're, they're, they tend to be much more rounded, uh, much more weathered, and and as a consequence, the extent of the skiing, um, the amount of um, area that's covered under snow is relative, relatively small, um, and the amount of vertical that we have uh, is relatively small as well. So it's different in that sense, um, and also the vegetation is fundamentally different. You know, one of the greatest um, um, one of the greatest comments that people make, particularly Europeans, is we're, we're skiing in, in in trees, which is not unusual, but they're gum trees. Uh, we have these beautiful trees called called snow gums, um, um, which are very they're a bit like a bonsai plant or a bonsai tree. They're very gnarled. They grow very very slowly, and as you get further down into the uh, the mountain ash, um, we have um, these beautiful uh, uh, mountain ash trees that are up to fifty meters, one hundred and sixty foot high. So we're talking about tree skiing. That's that's a different spin on what you're used to in North America. Yeah, that's that sounds beautiful. So there's no marked glades on the map, but you're saying there is a culture of tree skiing when the snow allows oh, yeah. for it. Yeah, that off piece that off piece skiing is um, yeah is um, is very popular. It, one other point of interest here, and uh, uh, you know, I was looking at the maps before I uh, for this interview, and I never really thought about this before. But in 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 North America, most of the ski resorts face north, but but I suppose in Australia, the advantage would be to face south. Is that right? That's correct. Yep, okay. south facing. And, and you have both at Mount yes, Polar. we do. We do. And, um, um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of like if, if, you, if you had had your time over again, it would be great to sort of flip that. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably our, our most appealing terrain is, is north-facing. Um, 
and that's certainly where um, most of that um, most of the the big woolly buck uh, the woolly buck tree groups are. Um, but it doesn't obviously doesn't hold the snow to the to the same extent. Right. And it looks like the last major expansion was the Wombat Pod back in 1993. Does Mount Buller have any plans or ability to expand the trail network further? Or are you kind of locked into the current boundaries you have? Yeah, look, we're, we're pretty well um, we're pretty well built out. You're, you're right. I mean, that was a major expansion, opened up a lot of terrain. You know, since that time, we've, um, you know, we've built we've built another six lifts um, since since Wombat. Um and we've had sort of incremental um, increases in terrain. We've opened up new terrain and made you know made things better. Um, but the opportunity for um, massive expansion, like opening up a blue sky bowl or something like that, that that's that that doesn't exist. All right, let's talk about your lift system. This, this is a really interesting background, I thought. So. Two separate companies, and correct anything I get wrong here, two, two separate companies once ran lifts on the mountain. And we actually have an analog here in New York City, so, and a lot of people don't realize this. There used to be two subway systems in New York City. So, so that if you would connect from one to the next, you had to buy another ticket. And they merged that system back in, I think, the 60s, 70s, and now you can get everywhere in New York City on the one subway system. But um, it, it wasn't always the case. And, th- and this reminds me of that, where you had one mountain, but you had two different lifts, so or two different lifts run by two different companies. So you needed two different lift tickets. So just talk to us about this system, and and that was that came together in 1985. So they they merged at some point, but but I understand that it kind of left you with a big mess to sort out. So talk about that history, and then how you've worked to unravel it and modernize the whole place for the past 25 years. Mm. Well, look, I'd, I'd I'd take exception at the comment that it left a, a mess. Um, I, I think. Um, well, let's just talk about the history first, and then and then um, I'll get to the punchline there, if you like. Um, sure. There were two companies. There was the Orange Lift Company, and there was the Blue uh, the Blue Lift Company. And very similar analogy to what you talked about the trains. Um, um, the leases um, the leases that the the two companies had were what we called tram track leases. So all they basically had was an easement, maybe you know maybe six to ten meters wide. Which is where the where the lifts were built, and um, uh, and outside of that was was crown land, which is um, you know government land, free uh, public land, and one of the companies was called the Orange uh, Lift Company, and as well as having a lift company, they also had a ski school. So the Orange Lift Company had what was called the Austrian Ski School. And um, no, no prize for guessing where, where all their instructors came from. <laughs> the Blue Lift Company had a ski school and it had what was called the French Ski School. So not only was there competition between the, uh, the two lift companies, there was massive competition between the two ski schools. And you throw in a bit of ethnic tension in there as well. Um, and they made for very interesting times, the way that they promoted themselves and touted for business and developed their clientele. Um, so uh, very, very interesting, very interesting times indeed. And the way that the lifting system developed, it was almost like a game of uh, chess, where if you could get an alignment to a certain point, you can imagine, you know, a trail map, uh, a lift, uh, a lift map, 
that if you could put a lift to a certain point, you effectively negated your competition from from going anywhere near that. So they sort of had this uh, their core areas that that were their was their country, if you like. But then they had this other areas, new frontiers when when the resort boundaries were actually expanding, that they'd make these um, tactical decisions primarily based on providing the best scheme, but also in the back of their mind was trying to put a, a check uh, on, on on their competitors. Um, and you were uh, you were able to um, you were able to um, ride both both lots of lift but you had to have a separate ticket and one of the one of the one of the pioneers of mount buller one of the great uh, characters of mount buller is a fellow by the name of hans grimace and he used to he had tall tales and true from the legendary past and one of the things he used to always say was well he and he was one of the um, proprietors of orange orange lifts but he'd always have a uh, he'd always have blue lift tickets in his uh, in his pocket because if he if he met a, a girl or another woman that he didn't want to have his, have his wife see or whatever it was, he'd ski blue that day. Jeez. But the but the, the the greatest legacy that came out of all of this um, is that the competition drove innovation and it drove development. And um, whilst you know that left, you know we were probably an overlifted mountain, and there's probably some decisions that were made, poor decisions were made in terms of lift alignments, um, the benefits that came out of that innovation and, and, and the development, that competition, um, really, uh, really benefited uh, Mount Buller enormously. Yeah, you were telling me earlier that Mount Buller over time was really a, a proving ground for lifts. So talk about some of those historic milestones that came out of experimentation at Mount Buller and how much of that may have had to do with that competition? Yeah, and I, look, I think there's a couple of factors here and, 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 and let's say Australia generally, but Mount Buller in particular. Um, um, Mount Buller had, in 1962, Doppelmayr built the first um, uh, fixed uh, two-seater chairlift in the world that it, that it built. Um, in 1984, um, we the, the the blue bullets were the first detachable four lift uh, four seater chairlifts in the world, um, and in 1986 we built the um, the Horse Hill Gondola, uh, which was the first uh, detaching chondola lift in the world. Those chondolas, you know, the chair gondola lifts, mm-hmm. becoming yep. very very popular now for a whole yep. bunch of reasons. Uh, well, 1986, one of those was was built at Mount Buller, and. Whilst it's easy to say to yourself that you know um, you know we're very innovative and uh, you know we were we were leaders of the industry, um, which which I won't walk away from, <laughs> but the <laughs> the major driver for that was was companies like Doppelmayr, who um, who were keen uh, let's let's say to experiment or do their innovations in in markets that were probably less exposed. Um, and less visible. So, I mean, these these weren't failures, but let's suppose some of these uh, these innovations didn't really work. Would you rather it be? And, and this is pre you know pre internet and all the rest of it and social media. Yeah. If things went pear shaped and it happened at Mount Buller in Victoria or in Australia, uh, nobody in Western Europe or uh, North America is going to be any any of the wiser for it. So. 
Um, so we were we were kind of like uh, uh, guinea pigs, I, I suggest. And you know, you've uh, you've really kept that innovation going there, Laurie. You've added three high speed lifts to the mount- mountain, including two six packs and an express quad. Uh, talk about each of those lifts and how they've changed the experience of skiing there. Um, yeah, and again, this what we're doing here is uh, it's replacement. It's not it's not um, it's not opening up new terrain. But um, uh, we have a lifting capacity of about forty thousand people per hour. We can get twelve thousand people. Uh, we get about twelve thousand people on in the resort when all lifts are opening, and we've got a we've got a good day. So, and you, again, you've got to remember that our that our lifts are. Uh, are, are short in comparison to um, Northern Hemisphere resorts. Uh, so, you know, 500, you know, we have chairlifts that are running 500 feet, 2,000 um, 2, metres. So um, quite short by, um, um, by uh, international standards. So we need to have a lot of lifts um, to, move, um, to move a lot of people. So um, detaching chairs uh, give us that capacity um, we get much longer spans on uh, get much longer spans on on the list. So being able to take towers off the off the ski runs was also very appealing to us as well. And you've also added a couple of fixed grip quads. Fox replaced Shaky Knees T bar in two thousand five, and Bonza replaced the Burn Hut Triple in twenty twelve. Just take us into this. You know, when you're making this decision of fixed grip or uh, detachable, how do you decide which way to go? Oh, this. I mean, this is this is the same in in any resort, um, Stuart. I mean, the 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 length of the lift, um, and both of those lifts are typically six hundred meters, two thousand feet, uh, one hundred and fifty meters vertical, or five hundred feet. Um, they're too short to justify the investment um, in a detaching chair. I mean, everyone would love to to ride detaching chairs, but unless you're getting somewhere around the fifteen hundred uh, meter mark. Um, the detaching chairs are sub-economic. Yeah, I was, I was laughing. We There's a place in Michigan, um, which is a state I grew up in, and I, I don't know if you ever skied in the Midwest, but most of the hills in Michigan are less than 500 feet vertical, and there's there's a place called Bittersweet in the southern part of the state, and uh, it has 400 vertical feet, so a little over 100 meters, and, and they're getting their second detachable chair. So <laughs> you'll be zipping up and down that thing. If you can uh, afford it, if you can afford it, yeah. you can put it in. Exactly. Uh, so you also removed a T-bar that ran up Boggy Creek. Why did you take that lift out and are there plans to replace it? Yeah, that lift was taken out in um, in 2000, uh, to, in time for the 2020 um, winter. But that uh, that is the site of a, a new 100 megalitre or 23 million gallon snowmaking pond that we built and you talk about Michigan you can you can you can attribute that uh, that fact to a fellow by the name of Joe Vanderkellen I don't know if you know Joe from uh, SMI um, Joe and I were walking around that uh, the, the the mountain one day trying to find a location for uh, uh, to build this second snowmaking pond and uh, Joe said the X when I put a mark on the map X marks a spot and and that's where it is. And unfortunately, the Boggy Creek T-Bar, which had been there since, uh, I think, 65, 66, something like that, yeah, it, had, it had to make way for the dam. Yep. 
And is there a way to put a lift back in there? Yeah, I, I have a permit or we have a permit to, um, well, we use half of the existing alignment for the, the old um, Boggy Creek T-bar and then um, ski off that lift uh, and to the side a couple of hundred metres and, and put a platter lift in, which will provide us access to a, to a better top station location than we had previously. So that'll get done one day. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Joe and, and SMI. I, I don't know Joe personally, but I, I that's in Midland, Michigan. And I grew up in mm. Midland County, Michigan, probably 10 miles from SMI and used to drive by it. The, uh, the freeway runs right past it and they would always make these big piles of snow, um, which were which were always fun to look at because they don't get a ton of snow in Midland. They get a little bit, but uh, but it was always a nice novelty to look at and see. So good good to see them uh, roaming, ro- roaming internationally and selling their wares. Yeah, no, been, uh, been a very... Long partner with us at Mount Buller SMI um, since uh, 1994. So, so backing out and looking at your lift fleet, obviously you've done a ton of work, um, but I, I think no one ever really feels like their lift fleet is complete. Uh, what does your wish list look like for the future lift upgrades that you're leaving to your successor? Yeah, well, we've got a um, we've got a permit for a um, a uh, four seater uh, fixed grip quad. Again, this is to replace. Um, an existing lift, which was the Grimace chairlift, which is a which a triple chair that was built in 1979. So it's about time. Again, looked at um, looked at optimizing the location and the uh, alignment and everything else. And uh, when you go and look at everything, that alignment's perfect. Um, we we're just going to put like for like in there, just increase the capacity and uh, put an electric drive on it. So that that project. Uh, that project would have probably gone ahead uh, last year or, or this year under normal circumstances, so it's on it's on hold for the for the foreseeable future. And then the other major project that um, that I've been looking on looking at for a couple of years is to replace that um, horse hill chondola, um, which went in in 1986, and we've been looking at a really exciting uh, uh, lifting solution um, for for that. And uh, what we've been looking at is um, is a twelve person gondola, but um, the the concept that um, that I think is right for this is to put in a, a single line gondola in a triangular configuration, mm. um, and and the beauty of that is it provides linkage from our car park um, to the to the north side of our mountain and then back to the village. So we'll have um, we could we could have this this lift could service both skiers and passenger movements. It'd be a great um, it'd be a great um, summer attraction as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a major investment. That's a that's a twenty five million dollar that's a twenty five million dollar lift. And the the benefit of using a single line is it's about a a thirty percent reduction uh, in costs if you had a a conventional configuration. So that's something I'm going to work on for the next uh, next 12 months or so as well, Stuart, in my retirement or my oh, consultancy. Yeah, <laughs> that is really cool, Laurie. I, I, are there any examples of that sort of lift configuration? We've, we've been right able to find one in a uh, in, in a zoo in uh, in in um, in uh, Spain, in Spain of all places, where they're actually going over a wildlife. When I say a zoo, it's like a wildlife park. And, and, and there's animals underneath. So it's not in, not in a ski resort. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's, that is, uh, I'm looking at the trail map right now and 
it makes perfect sense because you, you build one lift instead of two and it, it doesn't just connect two points. It connects three in every, in every way. That's correct. That's a really awesome idea. I hope you find a way to get that done. So do I. And I mean, I guess this is, this is, you know, going back to the ownership, I would imagine this is the kind of thing that where you have to have that great relationship with the owners and, and be able to tell a story that says, Hey, you know, I'm asking you to spend $25 million, but it's going to, the ROI on that's going to be pretty good because it's going to give you something really unique, something that really makes a lot of sense, something that makes this mountainous, a seamless experience to get around. Uh, and it does. And, you know, for environmental reasons and business reasons at the moment, if you come to that car park, if you've got the, um, if you've got the trail map open, you'll see there's a, there's a road back into the village from those day car parks. Uh, and, and that's all serviced by buses. Um, and after you've been on a, you know, 35 kilometer mountain road, um, and then to get out, park your car and then get on a bus, you know, that's the last thing you want to do. So if we can get people into a lift and, and this is, you know, we have a, a large proportion of our visitation as well um, that, that are not skiers or snowboarders because because the Alps, uh, the, the Australian Alps are a novelty. They're an attraction for many people. Um, we have at Mount Buller, we have um, 500,000 visitors a year and, 200,000 of those people don't ski or snowboard. So they just want to, they just want to have an Alpine experience. And that, that, that would be part of that experience. Yeah. Come to see the mountains. Do you have permits for this? Is it past the kind of conceptual stage? Uh, we don't have permits because we're still working on the design, but I, I, it's included in a, there's a gondola uh, to the village included in our resort master plan. Yep. The other alignments along an existing alignment so I don't see permitting being a major issue for, for that sort of a investment. And, and what current lifts would have to come out if you put this in? The Northside Express, that chondola that went in, or the Horse Hill, Horse Hill gondola that went in in 1986. Okay. All right. And then that, yeah, that, well, that's, that's pretty much any, toward the end of its usable life anyway. Yes, it is. So let's talk about snowmaking. Uh, but before we talk about the snowmaking system, could you just help us understand just natural snowfall at Mount Buller. How much snow do you see in an average season? Uh, average year we get, average uh, depth is about is about 50 centimeters natural. Okay. And uh, which is 1.64 um, feet, I think. And okay. if we get 254, which is about 8.3 feet. Okay. And, and that, what, what are the months where it snows down there? Well, it, it it generally snows every every month of the year. Uh, we get mm -hmm. we get regular storms coming through. Obviously, it doesn't last long uh, in, in in the summer months. But our, our peak our peak skiing uh, or snowfall months are June, July, August, and September. Um, mm -hmm. And and that's when that and and that's when that snowfall uh, occurs. And how consistent is that year to year? Give us your lowest year and your best year in your twenty five years there. As far as snowfall, well, our records—we got reliable records going back 40, uh, 43 years. Um, wow. Two thousand and six was our worst year. We had uh, we had uh, 94, 94 centimeters of snow cumulative for, for that year, which is which is um, three feet. Um, and our best year was in nineteen eighty one, where we had uh, four hundred and fifty two uh, centimeters, wow. or nearly fifteen inches. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be great. And, and, and 15 feet, I should say. Uh, right. Uh, it, so th those, those are outliers. And typically you can count on more like the eight feet you were mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And we generally ski, we're able to ski these days with snowmaking you know, 120 days a year. Uh, you're So nonetheless, you have a, a pretty extensive snowmaking system. That was not always the case. So take us back here. What did Mount Buller's snowmaking system look like when you arrived and what does it look like today? Well, we put our snowmaking system, our, uh, let's call it our second generation of snowmaking, went in in 1994 uh, after a disastrous uh, 1993 season. Um, and that was put in by SMI. So that was uh, had about 100 guns, covered uh, about 69 uh, acres. Uh, and, uh, and I remember when I started in 1996, we had 16 snowmakers on the payroll. So... It was all a manual system. Um, this year, uh, we have 330 um, snow producers covering uh, 185 um, acres, uh, mm-hmm. and, and we employ um, six snowmakers. So we're about wow. 95% uh, automated now. Wow. That's unbelievable. You know, I'm looking at your map, and... It- one thing that's very different when you start skiing outside of North America is our tree line is very high. And yeah. as a result, in most cases, the trails are cut through the trees. You can keep them fairly narrow and manageable. So I'm looking at this snowfield on top of your mountain. And obviously you have a lot of stuff down through the trees, but you have just this massive snowfield. Just talk about the challenges of, of maintaining snowmaking on that huge piece of acreage up there and, and and how you are able to, to keep it consistent and deep, or, or do you kind of piece it together with snow roads? Like, how do you manage that whole summit piece with the natural, with the, with the wide open field? Well, a couple of things that, that you do when you've got any, any exposed area in a ski, in a ski area, and you see it all around the world. Um, extensive use of snow making, as, as snow fencing. Um, mm. You've got to be able to stop um, the, um, the snow being stripped off from the from the top and uh, deposited. Well, depends who you talk to. If you like the powder hounds, they, they'll they don't like snow fences at all. But snow snow fences are really effective uh, for uh, retaining that snow in those locations. And where we have snow fences uh, up on that area that you're looking on, what we call Baldy, we'll have um, two, two, and in some places three rows of uh, of snow fences. And along each row uh, of snow fences, we'll have um, We'll have fan guns, um, and and the fans in those locations are able to make snow in in both directions. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, where we can put a lot of snow out there, and it really doesn't matter where it where it ends up because it's not going to blow off in into the trees, which is which is a problem. Um, it's going to end up where people can ski, and uh, and then we can we can harvest it with the with the snow cats later anyway. And, and how much of a, how much of a difference you've mentioned this pond, this hundred uh, megaliter pond a couple of times, how much of a difference has that made in, in, in just the ability of Bowler to just lay it out and cover that mountain in a very short amount of time? Yeah. Well, I think one of the other, one of the other factors that you need to understand about um, operating resorts um, in Australia is that um, in, from snowmaking perspective we operate in very marginal conditions um, we would only get between 500 and 700 of our 700 hours of operation um, for snow making by that I mean less than two degrees um, wet bulb Celsius so um, we don't get um, consistently um, cold temperatures 
Um, so when it does get cold, uh, we need to be able to hit it with a big hammer. We've got to hit it hard. So we've got to invest a lot. That's why we need to have a lot of guns. That's why we need to have um, large pumping capacity and large compressed air capacity because we've got to make hay while the sun shines. So we currently, uh, our pumping capacity at the moment is 400 litres per second, which is, in your languages, that's 800 gallons per second. And with that um, that new storage, the next stage of our expansion for our snowmaking system will increase our pumping capacity to 600 litres per second, which is 132 gallons per, per, per second. And, um, and we'll take out, we'll double the size of our air plant from, 16,000 CFM to something like 32,000 CFM, which is which in world in world standards that's that's pretty big, and particularly for a, particularly for a ski area our size. The other thing that uh, that you might be interested in as well is um, in since 2018, um, we've also invested in um, in continuous snowmaking technology. These these snow factories. I don't know. Uh, whether you've seen um, whether you've seen any of them in operation, but um, these uh, snow factories, we we saw some from a European supplier, Techno Alpen. Um, we have one um, um, SF two hundred, which is capable of making um, two hundred cubic meters of uh, of snow per day, wow. and in in all in all temperature conditions. So we will start making snow uh, on the twenty fifth of April. Uh, getting ready for a January one opening, um, and that's proven to be to guarantee an opening date of the season is 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 really important, and that's proven so successful. We bought a a second machine, a uh, an SF one hundred, which we have mounted on the back of a um, a truck, so we're able to move this machine around the resort, and it, it can produce a hundred a hundred cubic meters a day, and. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I just placed an order last week for another two. So we'll have the capacity. We'll have the capacity to make five hundred cubic meters of snow in any conditions um, um, for from next winter. And you know, this 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 uh, this summer we're planning to have a a white Christmas, a bit of a novelty, a bit of an attraction in the heat of the Australian summer. So yeah, people are going to come up to Mount Buller and at Christmas and throw some snowballs. Oh, <laughs> nice. You going to have a, uh, a magic carpet running or anything or strictly uh, I, a snowplow? I think it'll be a snowplow experience. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, what are the temperatures like up in the mountains around Christmas time? Uh, never gets any hotter than about 25, generally okay. uh, Celsius. Um, uh, generally, we're around the um, you know, 17, 18 degrees. Okay, nice. Always at least, at least 12 degrees cooler than the valley. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, that'll be a good time. Um, let's talk quickly about your Olympic legacy there at Mount Buller. I, I, as I understand it, there's a number of Olympians who have made that their, their home for training and have gone out to success. So talk a little bit about that legacy and, and the facility you have there for those folks to, to train on. Yeah. Well, in 19, when I first came here in 1996, one of the first things that I did was um, build a, a world cup aerial site. Um, and, uh, probably uh, a little-known fact, but Mount Buller has held uh, 32 World Cup aerial events, wow. 
which is up, which is up there with uh, <laughs> up there with some of the leading resorts in the world. I, last time I checked, I don't think anyone had had thirty two World Cup events, and the reason we had so many was we had men's and women's that were run concurrently, and um, because we were bringing athletes and officials down to the southern hemisphere, we had we had two events. So there was one World Cup one day, and the following day there was another. Um, and one of the reasons that that we uh, we invested in that is that we had we had some world class athletes at the time, and um, and uh, and 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 that that legacy has continued. You know, we've got people like Kirsty Marshall, Jackie Cooper, Elisa Camplin, uh, Lydia Iridua Conu, and they all won um, World Cup champions and, and a number of them won, um, won Olympic medals. Um, and, and that facility um, that facility still operates today. Um, and then uh, some of our, some of our um, uh, other most prominent um, um, athletes from, um, from snowboarding would be Alex Chumpy Pullen, who is a World Cup champion. And, and uh, in recent times, I think, a lot of your people would know Scotty James, um, mm-hmm. uh, Park and Pipe guy. So, yeah, we've yeah, we've, we've produced our our share of um, world class athletes. That's for sure. Do you get any North Americans coming down there to train in the summer times? I, I I think the Europeans have their their glaciers they can train on, uh, but but maybe they come down as well. Do you, do you get folks from the northern hemisphere? Yeah, we get uh, we usually get a lot of um, freestylers, the Canadian um, freestylers. Um, when I'm uh, Mogul skiers predominantly, um, and and aerials come come down our way. A lot of um, uh, the the um, alpine skiers tend to go to New Zealand, where it's a little bit more vertical. Nice. So you you have another way of of maybe those of us who are uh, less accomplished skiers, you found a way to honor them as well. You have the Legends and Personalities Wall that you introduced at Mount Buller in two thousand eight. Uh, tell us about that wall and why you created it. Yeah, well, look, we had a we had a space, a big vault that you walked into, uh, a covered space. Uh, it, you come up the entrance stairs to the resort, onto the onto the main uh, main lift, and yeah, it was all a bit barren and it was all a bit sparse. And um, a conversation with with Reno one day, he said we should put some pictures up here and and celebrate some of those um, some of those people that have made a difference to our resort and. Whether they've been our athletes, or whether they've been the pioneers, or whether they're some of the women, or you know some of the people that are running businesses now, and yeah, it was just a it was just a way to um, to give some recognition to people who um, provided great service to the mountain over over many years. Nice. You can find those online. I will include a link to that page in the article that accompanies this podcast, Laurie. Um, I want to switch over to talking about passes here. So in 2019, Mount Buller joined both the Icon and the Mountain Collective passes. Just talk to us about the process of joining those passes and why you thought to be a good fit for Mount Buller. Well, uh, <laughs> we'd, we'd been trying to, um, we always want to hitch your wagon to other resorts. We'd had a history of having sister resort relationships with uh, a number of international resorts. And in fact, we had a sister resort relationship with Vale for many, many years. Oh, wow. um, um, pre, uh, pre their acquisition of, uh, of Perisher, that came to a pretty abrupt end. Um, <laughs> but um, once, uh, and, and we've also been very keen to, to, um, to join uh, the Mountain Collective and we hosted, 
we hosted uh, a visit from representatives from Aspen um, to try and um, to get onto that program. Um, and I think they were they were busy at the time and just managing it, and they didn't want to get too big too quick and all the rest of it. So, you know, we had an expression of interest there, but we were, you know, we we were on the back burner from them. And then um, when with the acquisition with Vale's acquisition of Hotherman Falls Creek, obviously that made news around the world, and um, um, Mountain Collective um, were were keen to. Uh, to reopen some negotiations at that stage. So I had a conversation uh, uh, with Todd and, and, and Christian from Aspen at the time. And, uh, you know, whilst we've been trying to get onto that program for about uh, five years, I think we got on in five minutes following the acquisition <laughs> by Vale. So, and that, and that really um, opened the door for the conversation with, uh, with Icon. And uh, again, we, we were able to, stitch that together very very quickly and uh, uh and those folks have been fantastic to deal with as well what's your motivation here laurie are you, are you primarily trying to draw more international visitors to australia and say hey you know what you can ski in the summer come on down here try it or, or were you trying to create something better for your pass holders where they might be able to upgrade to an icon pass what was your thinking here in joining these coalitions yeah um look like everybody else, it's it's self interest predominantly. Um, um, we don't, we never see a, uh, an era where we're going to get huge volumes of North American skiers um, coming to our to our country for uh, for extended periods of time. We we regularly get um, uh, people from North America um, with that curiosity value, and they've got that that those, those products, and they they want to experience it. But they'll couple that up with a a trip to the Great Barrier Reef and, and Sydney and all the rest of it. So um, the inbound volumes aren't, uh, aren't, uh, aren't significant, but the, the real value for us is about adding value um, to our season membership pass holders. And in particular, um, in particular the, uh, the Mountain Collective um, provides great value for, for our loyalists um, when they can, they can get reciprocal rights in those North American uh, resorts, fifty percent off products, um, and, and they love that. And 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 to be associated with Icon and 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 the resorts that you know that they have in their in their portfolio, it's nice to hit your wagon to that sort of a to that sort of an outfit. Yeah, absolutely. I, a lot of the Icon Pass partners that are not owned by Altera such as Aspen and Jackson Hole, they'll actually include an Icon Base Pass with their top tier pass, which is a very expensive pass. It's about $2,500. Uh, Snowbird, uh, another huge mountain that um, is not an Altera mountain, but is on Icon Pass, uh, their pass holders can add an Icon Base Pass on for $269. Do you have anything similar or have you considered anything similar for Mount Buller where your pass holders of your season pass could add an Icon Pass on? Um, look, we've started discussions with um, with Icon about things like that, but uh, and um, um, Matt Bowers came down and saw us uh, in two thousand and October two thousand and nineteen, and we were well down the the track to explore those sorts of things then. But you know, with what's happened with COVID in the last couple of years, uh, yeah, all those sorts of plans are you know being put on the back burner, and um, we've had other priorities to deal with, but. You know, for us, it's about providing value for our pass holders. So they don't necessarily need to buy another pass to go and ski internationally. And 
with uh, we had long-standing relationships in, in in Japan with our sister resort there at Matareo, Secret Garden. I talked to you about um, Courchevel in France and uh, and Saint Anton, where our pass holders can go and have four days um, skiing for free on their on their Mount Buller Pass. They're Australian, so they're going to go for longer than four days. They're going to be going in, you know, they're going to be skiing for at least a week, maybe two weeks, um, mm. and um, and they're going at a time which is very appealing to uh, northern Europe, northern hemisphere resorts because it's generally in, in January after Christmas, so that's usually a quiet period. So our customers are our customers are valued because of when they visit and how long they how long they stay. Yeah, I, I tell you, you know, I, I run into a lot of Aussies on the lift, you know, especially when I'm skiing out west, and we'll be chatting, and and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I've been here for three weeks, and I'll be here for another two weeks," and and we, if if you never see a rush of North Americans to Mount Buller, it probably has more to do with our broken vacation culture, and you know, some people get two weeks of vacation a year, if that. Um, I've been fortunate to work at companies where I get much more, but th- this idea in America of, of taking five consecutive weeks and going off on a holiday is just not really culturally accepted in general. So I'm always very jealous when I, when I run into the Australians and say, Oh man, you guys know how to vacation. You guys know how to live. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess it, it's hard to say because you, you signed these agreements in 2019, 2019 was normal, but that was the last bit of normal that we've had. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think a, an American could have gotten into Australia if they tried the last two summers. So, um, so I guess you're kind of in wait and see. I mean, did you did you see anything that first winter to indicate that you were having some folks who, because they had the Icon Pass, said, "Hey, yeah, let's tack on, you know, three days at Mount Buller because we have it on our pass." Oh, uh, we we certainly we certainly did. Um, but as you say, um, it was a relatively. Um, um, late introduction to all of that. Um, people didn't really have a chance to get their head around and around it all. Um, and, and this is a, for us, this is a long game. This is, um, you know, we're not looking for instant gratification from, um, from these uh, partnerships. Uh, you know, we're, we're in it for the long haul as all, all of those partners are. And uh, I'm sure we'll see benefits for everybody uh, in the future. All right, quickly, let's talk about environment and sustainability. I thought, thought this was interesting. Mount Buller is the first Australian ski company to achieve ISO 14001 standard for environmental management. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. Uh, break that down for us, Laurie. What does that mean and what did you have to do to attain that? Yeah, well, a- actually, we, we have a triple certified ISO 14001 is an international standard. It's a, um, so that's, that's a worldwide standard. Um, and it was part of a suite of um, triple certifications that that we wanted to get as a business, and that that was for quality management, environment, environmental management, and obviously um, um, health and safety management. So um, the, the the drivers for these things were um, predominantly coming from a risk risk management perspective. Uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, all of the things that we have to worry about um, as, as a resort. Um, we ha- we we could do effectively first and foremost by raising the awareness. It's a cultural thing, uh, making people aware of all of these things, making them proud of the uh, achievements that we've been able to uh, um, to uh, the recognition that we've been able to obtain. But more importantly, to make sure that um, 
these values and these procedures are, are part of everything we do um, uh, every day. That's tremendous. And, and what do you have to do to maintain that certification? Is, is there a, is there an annual process or? Yeah, there's an annual. There's a surveillance audit every every twelve months, and then um, every three years you've got to do a um, um, a, a recertification type of exercise. But once you're there, you know, once you've got the disciplines in place. Um, you know, they're always going to, with an audit process, there'll always be continuous improvement. Um, but it's, they're a lot harder to get than they are to maintain. All right. Well, congratulations on attaining that. Let's wrap it up here with COVID-19. Laurie, I know this has upended all of our worlds. Australia, however, has been much more aggressive with shutdowns than the United States, at least past that initial period. How much has Mount Buller actually been able to operate over these past two seasons? Yeah. And, and, and might I say, Stuart, to that, you talk about Australia, but Victoria has been even much more aggressive okay. than, than the rest of Australia. Um, I think Melbourne yesterday, Melbourne's the capital city of, uh, of Victoria. Uh, Melbourne yesterday um, uh, went past Buenos Aires, I think, as the, um, as the most lockdown city in the world. Unreal. Um, yeah. So in 2020, um, we were limited to 44 days of operation. Um, Ouch. And uh, that's, so that's about a third. Uh, mm-hmm. And this year, this year we've been able to operate um, uh, 70, 79 days. Uh, we closed uh, on, on Sunday, the 3rd of October. Um, but the biggest challenge for us is that our primary market, we're 300, this is three hours from Melbourne notionally, um, and that's Melbourne's a city of, you know, four and a half, five million people. Uh, and that's where our market comes from. And um, Melbourne people were only able to visit uh, um, our, our resort for 11 days last year and 19 days uh, this year. So, so that's had a massive, massive impact on uh, on our on our business. Unbelievable. Um, it, has that? How has the mountain been able to maintain its financial health through all that? Do you, are you getting any help from the government? Is, is it, do you just cut back? Like, how yeah. are you able to do it? Um, we've got um, we've got very, uh, as I mentioned to you before, we've got very passionate owners um, who who have um, who have stood by um, who have stood by their people um, and uh, have stood by um, the resort and 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 the other resort operators. That that's been a huge huge part of the reason why I've been able to survive. Um, we've also got an understanding bank um, mm-hmm. who uh, yeah. spent a lot of time renegotiating finance facilities, and uh, you know they understand that the fundamentals of our business are right. Um, there's 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 no concerns about the demand side. Um, it's purely and simply been about the supply side, and that will be you know that will pass. That will pass, and uh, everyone's confident of that. Um, and there, there has been government, there has been state and federal government support, um, particularly for employees. This year, the Victorian government's also provided a significant amount of financial support to Alpine businesses that have that have really been on their on their knees, and and certainly wouldn't have got through without it. Right. Do you think, Laurie, that Australia's approach has been the right approach? These extended shutdowns, the repeated shutdowns, the very restrictive shutdowns. Uh, or do you think you could have found a way to operate safely with some modifications? 
I don't think there's a right and wrong answer to this mm -hmm. question, Stuart. Um, each jurisdiction's got different factors at play. Um, what I what I can say was that I, I think the timing, and, and it's all about timing as well. Um, if you recall um, the, the worst of COVID, the outbreaks uh, were in sort of February, March of 2020, and there were very notable cases uh, in Aspen um, where there were some very high-profile Australian visitors there that um, hosted parties and got, got unwell. Uh, there was also the, those episodes that um, occurred in uh, Ischgl in, um, in Austria, um, where many, many people from, from Germany got, got sick in that nightclub atmosphere and all, the, all of that sort of stuff conspired to create this, um, this image at the time that, um, that, that the ski resorts were, were you know, um, cesspools for, uh, for COVID. So we faced, we faced um, much, stricter, uh, much stricter restrictions in Victoria, uh, undoubtedly because of the timing of all of that. Um, the complexion of our government is different to the government in New South Wales. They're a lot more, they're a lot more um, freer in, in their operations, and the New South Wales resorts operated pretty much unimpeded in in, in 2020. So here's here's two jurisdictions, and and the resorts are only 100 kilometres away from each other as the crow flies. Um, two different governance models. So I don't know. Um, it, it's a tough it's a tough question. You're seeing exactly the same thing in different jurisdictions in the States. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly uh, actually in Canada last year, um, Ontario was shut down for much Ontario ski resorts were shut down for much of the winter. Uh, whereas Quebec was able to operate normally. So, so yeah, no, things are, uh, things are weird, weird times. Um, but let me actually finish here, Lori. I, I got to ask you about the earthquake. So <laughs> this was this making the rounds. You guys had an earthquake and the, the snow cams were shaking and uh, yeah. tell, tell us about the earthquake. Well, that was Tuesday two weeks ago. It was two weeks ago today. Um, 5.7 on, on the Richter scale. Wow. That, that, that's a big shake. And, um, yeah. and where we live, uh, yeah, we've got bushfires, we've got snakes, and we've got all this other, all this other uh, uh, stuff to deal with. But we, we live in a, um, we live in a re relatively um, stable um, geotechnical uh, you know, um, earthquake environment. Yeah. Um, and that that was unprecedented. That that I believe is the the strongest quake that's been uh, recorded uh, in Australia of all time. The fortunate wow. thing about it was that it, the the epicenter wasn't far from Mount Buller, but um, it's in a very very remote part of the state, and uh, there's um, very few people, very few buildings around it. But yeah, my my word, it certainly um, it certainly shook us up, so to say. Fortunately, no. Fortunately, no damage, and and we we, we didn't really have a playbook to, uh, you know, you've got your chairlift evacuation codes and lightning and yada yada yada, but we didn't have a protocol for um, um, for earthquakes. So um, we were running lifts at the time, so the decision was made very quickly that we would stop all of the lifts. Um, we did a um, we did a and we had people online um, chair, and they, I'm, I'm talking about the chairs here. Um, um, so we, we, before we started them up, we did a visual inspection on all of the foundations, make sure everything was in order there. And, uh, we did another line check, cleared the lines and did another line check. And 
man, all good. Um, and if you think about it, they're pretty flexible structures. As yeah. uh, you know, if you don't if you don't shake a uh, a cable off uh, off the shivs, you should be okay. And uh, and that's and that's what happened. Right. Where were you at when this all went down? I was making a cup of coffee uh, in, in, in in our uh, in, in in my back office there, and uh, I thought it was I thought it was snow um, unloading from the roof. We'd we'd had a bit of a storm the day before, and you know when you you know how snow um, it can make a bit of a bang and a bit of a a bit of a rumble, and that's what right. I presumed it was. But yeah, you know, we hadn't had that much snow, and it kept going for the best part of uh, twenty seconds. So, and yeah, that's when things started shaking off the off the shells and all of those sorts of things. So yeah, it certainly, certainly got some attention. Had you ever been in an earthquake before? Uh, I'd lived in New Guinea for a period of time. So I'd had some experience. Okay. Yes. Okay. Did you, did you spill your coffee? Did you manage to? Keep uh, no, I left the coffee in the machine and got out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a smart decision. Yeah. All right, Laurie. Well, I, I took way more of your time that I promised. I, I cannot thank you enough for that. Um, I, I really enjoyed learning about Australian skiing culture today and, and Mount Buller in particular. Uh, I'm hoping I can get over there to ski someday. Um, and when I do, I will look you up. Please do. We'll make sure we show you a good time. That's Laurie Blampede, General Manager of Mount Buller, Australia. That was so interesting. Now I want to go ski Australia. As I was poking around, researching this podcast, I found a whole lot to like in that scene. Thank you for that primer, Lori, and congratulations to you on an amazing career. I think you put that place in a really strong spot to keep growing for decades. Hopefully I can come ride that triangle gondola once you drop that thing in. How awesome did that sound, by the way? Thank you all very much for listening. Next up, I will be speaking with Boyne Mountain General Manager Ed Grice about that mountain's recently announced 2030 plan, which includes the first eight-pack chairlift in the Midwest. Then, just an awesome lineup. Crystal Mountain, Washington, Steve Cooper, Colorado, Vail Resorts Eastern Region, Shawnee, Maine, Jackson Hole, Smuggler's Notch, Massachusetts, Steamboat, and more. A whole bunch of stuff. Tentatively lined up, not ready to talk about it yet, but it's gonna be really good. The best way to hear all of those the second that they drop is to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. You can also follow along on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal, and you can find the storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.